Welcome to Healing Wisdom, a Thursday morning talk show featuring guests sharing their stories and knowledge. We discuss the healing aspects of the arts, metaphysics, social justice, and adventure through all types of terrain. So join me, Pandora Peoples, here on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown and WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. We're streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. Today is part two in my conversation with Dr. Paula David, a geriatric and group therapist who specializes in working with patients who have experienced extreme trauma. Dr. David is an educator, lecturer, and her collective poetry project with Holocaust survivors at Baycrest Geriatric Center in Toronto became the inspiration for Silent Tears, the last Yiddish tango, a collection of poems turned songs. Again, the album is out now. Today, we talk at length about the effect of trauma on memory and how creativity helps survivors. And then when some of the women that I knew over time very well got older, they got sick and they did have dementia. And there's a disinhibition that goes with dementia and you no longer remember what you don't want to tell and what you do. And things would spill out of their mouths. And I often felt Part of my job would be if the family is there visiting their beloved mother and terrified and upset that they're so ill and they're losing their mom cognitively and then physically is impending, um, they don't need to hear at that point that their mother was raped, you know, 17 times after they murdered the babies. And in some cases, babies they didn't know, the adult children today didn't know it existed. So I would jump in and try and deflect the conversation. I couldn't possibly say, remember, we discussed this and you didn't want to tell because that doesn't make sense anymore. And nobody remembers that. So I would try and change the conversation. I would try and change, rearrange visiting hours or make sure that the individual was well rested and not anxious, if possible, for when the family was coming. But I couldn't always do that. And therefore, spend some time preparing family, but it's excruciatingly painful and heartbreaking to see that. So we had to look at ways to avoid triggering those kinds of outbreaks. Flash forward many years later, and by this time, there was all of us that had been involved in this work over the years, um, a small group and working tightly together. The group had grown. There was a much greater interest in trauma work and older adults. And more discussion and stories of sexual violence started coming out more. A lot of the younger survivors who had grown up in a different culture were able to discuss it more readily. Not a lot, a few, but that began the conversation. And I was at a conference about 10, 15 years ago in L.A., the first time a group of people, historians, legal experts, um, psychologists, social work, came together, very small group, to talk about sexual violence. And they were asking me, how come you haven't documented this? How come you haven't told everybody? I said, because I haven't. I wasn't sure where to go with it. And I promised confidentiality. And they very much, especially the legal people looking at war crimes today and sexual violence as a tool of war, um, were trying to get um, testimonies from survivors and what they had experienced to demonstrate how devastating and how much this had gone on. And at first, I was being very protective of the people that I knew that had stories. 
And the more they talked, I thought, in fairness, I never asked them. So that prepared me. And I went back home from there and asked a few people, said, you don't have to do it. Would you like to go on tape? And so interesting. A few of them said, yes, but you can't show anybody till after I'm dead. Um, some of them did and gave it to their kids who promptly put it in the safety deposit box and said, maybe they'll watch it one day. So we are still evolving and learning about the impact of the pain, of the trauma that you get from hearing about the trauma. Um, whoops, I'm sorry about that. The trauma from hearing about the trauma. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, again, um, I slid into this work. Anything I had learned about trauma work, um, I had an MSW. Um, and I had worked actually in child welfare with child abuse. So I had seen some really challenging and upsetting things. Anything I ever learned did not prepare me to cope for this, with the stories that I heard. And so that was huge and challenging learning for me. And for me, and there, there wasn't a body of us at the time. And everyone that I worked with, regardless of their discipline, we were all in the same boat. So we thought we knew the history of the war. We thought we knew the events and what people do to each other, but we not the personal lived experience. So to look for ways to help people tell the story. And I'm working with people across the board where English is by far not their first language. Um, they're much better, um, more worldly than most of us. They speak several languages, but English is the one that is the newest one, and they do not necessarily have the vocabulary to express what they're trying to feel. And I'm not even sure I would have the vocabulary to express it. So in some ways, it was more emotional and much more raw because the language was pretty simple and you couldn't um, cover up your pain with words. And I come from a, a visual arts background. I was an art teacher in another life. And for me, that was the obvious um, way for me to have cut through language barriers and to help all of us process. Because as it turns out, it wasn't just me, the group leader and the social worker that were having challenges. What fascinates me to this day is everyone in the room, when one woman would stop and talk about the most hideous, the most um, assaultive experience, everybody was sitting there with their jaw dropping saying, I can't believe this happened. And at the end of the narrative, she would say, I can't believe this happened. And yet each one of them was equally horrific to the next. So we all had that problem. We all had to figure out a way of, I guess, a crutch for better communication. So that was that was my experience. And that's how I learned. And then I found if I ever got complacent and wasn't kind of shaking in my seat, I knew I needed a break for a little bit because I was not really listening. So it's a push-pull. Wow, that is fascinating. Um, there's a lot of points that you touched on, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about the triggers. So, you know, for some people, shaving, you know, or going bald, you know, having a haircut can be a trigger standing in a line, getting a vaccine injection, 
flashlights, foreign languages, the sound of crying, the sound of screaming, sirens, bells, whistles, dental work, the clicking of heels on a hard floor, religious imagery, dogs. I'm wondering about the phobias that develop out of these kind of triggers. And I'm curious about how much old age, you know, has an effect, you know, you you did touch on it quite a bit, but like, how does it change over a lifetime, you know, and then maybe it's appropriate to talk about the environment of a nursing home, because so many things like the need for privacy, feeling exposed, um, the smell of urine, the smell of feces, things that they experienced um, at these concentration camps come back, they're immersed in a lot of triggers, right? And I think where there's cognitive impairment and advanced dementia, it's not only does it come back, it puts you back there, which is even worse. So the very kindly night nurse who comes in to turn you over even and has a flashlight so as not to wake up anybody else could be coming to take you away and shoot you. And it's not even the flashback of remembering that was your experience. This is happening in the now. And that is where aging and age-related illnesses come in to change it from the 25-year-old who has the flashback, but not necessarily really feels that they're there. So anything in an institutional environment where you you don't have full control can put you in that position. And it's so important to understand one of the early experiences was in Baycrest is a multifaceted, multi-service complex. So it has a nursing home, it has independent living, it has a hospital, and across the board, it's all for older adults. So we got to see many, many survivors at different levels of health and wellness and facing different challenges. So that in the nursing home, which had a long, the one that we, it's since been rebuilt, replaced, and we don't have long, long halls with rooms on either either side. But we realized pretty quickly that staff couldn't be wearing hard-soled shoes or women high heels or any of that because the clicking of feet on the hall floor, soldiers are coming, someone is coming. We redid this list of triggers, many of them, we kept adding and adding to it, which is why we, it took us so long to share it because every week we would hear more from staff. Many of them were transplanted and put into a veterans list of triggers. That was one of them because you never know who's marching towards you and coming at you. And it should also be for the healthy people. Why do they need to be reminded of that? It's also devastating for staff who come in wanting to take good care of people and get screamed at and for unknown reason. So it was fascinating. The triggers, many of them happened over food. Had to be careful in the dining room quite often not to whisk plates away until someone actually put their fork and spoon down and even then don't whisk it away. A lot of issues with food hoarding, which isn't uncommon with older adults in facilities who are impaired. And I think a lot of it goes back, so many lived through the depression, or if you come from war-torn countries, you were without food at some point. So we had one gentleman who would hide bread, and often it's real basic food, it would be bread, and in his night table, and he had a stash of rolls in there, which would then get moldy, and 
highly protective. If anybody came near the drawer, he would start to scream. So a plan that was noticed quickly, a plan came up. Every other night, the night shift, when he was sleeping, would go into his room, take out the rolls, replace them with fresh and frozen ones because they last longer. They'd be defrosted by morning, but, and he would get up, he would check and um, it was okay. And small, small price to pay for peace, totally healthy alternative to mood altering drugs. And it was that simple. We just had to be creative and think about it. So this too is a creative way of working, which is, I think, what sustained me in doing that work. You had mentioned the holidays and the concert uh, that featured some music from Bach and how one of those was something that had been played right at a concentration camp on the loudspeaker. Uh, So they were familiar with that. I had read about the triggers. Some religious iconography, Christian and Jewish, has a similar effect. And even just there can become a fear of Jewish holidays and celebrations like so can you talk a little bit about that? How does that get healed? Like, how do you work towards creating safety around that? Because I would think that that would be part of a spiritual catharsis. Well, again, it's totally unique to the individual. What we learned is that every single staff person, no matter what their job, had to be aware and had to know about triggers. And don't number one, don't take verbal assault or emotional assault personally physical assault you have to respond to in a different way but that too so for example it was a primarily Jewish facility and the staff was not primarily Jewish and not only that many of our staff came from other countries and had their own horrific pasts and didn't really know much about the Holocaust and then they come to Baycrest and they see a group of older adults who have been in Canada for several years and had many of them good lives nice family, supportive families. Baycrest is a beautiful facility. So part of the option is just introducing them to this and letting them know some of the history. The reason there was a specialized home for Jewish older adults is because they weren't allowed in the early days into the non-Jewish homes. And now we understand cultural appropriateness and cultural sensitivity. That wasn't the case. Baycrest was a response by a very poor and marginalized community to take care of their elders. So it's evolved um, magnificently since then. So one of the things I'm trying to explain to these people, I know you've had hard times. Don't, don't make quick judgments that these people are all happy and well off and fine and settled. And, and then we talk about the triggers and one might be a cross around your neck, sitting on your chest, which have uniforms in that, but you wouldn't take that off of somebody when it's part of their persona. And so I said, you don't have to take it off. Be aware you might want to tuck it in because you don't want to know sooner that we have that discussion that I had a client living from the community, went in for a broken hip for rehab to our rehab unit at Baycrest, child survivor who was rescued by nuns and raised by nuns. And as part of that, they had to teach her her catechism and be a good Catholic little girl to blend into the other orphans in in the orphanage. And she had her rosary. And then she grew after the war. Relatives in Canada brought her over. She was raised. She had, I think it was a, a great aunt. She was well cared for. And she was committed to Holocaust education, a very bright, active woman. 
in the Jewish community and working with the Jewish schools and kids to teach them about this. When she was feeling vulnerable in the hospital in a strange place and scared, it brought back so much of her childhood and she hid in her night table drawer a rosary because at night she would do her rosary beads and that gave her comfort. And she had a star of David around her neck at the same time. And she asked me for help because she didn't want her kids to see this. She knew it would upset them. So that was an that was an almost simple fix. We could do that easily. And she felt much better. And then later I asked permission to tell that story because it was such an example of be flexible. So, and the same with the holidays. We had one gentleman in our adult day program who was a very well-known um, legal authority in another country, a total delightful gentleman, not Jewish. And he was in our adult day program, fairly impaired and just but delightful. And his family knew this is a largely Jewish community. Are you comfortable? And the answer was absolutely. I totally respect this group. And, and he fit in beautifully and everybody really liked him. And his wife was thrilled that he was so happy in this program. Went home one day, said, I can't go back. I can't stay there anymore. I can't be there. So she phoned me in a panic because this was also her respite coming in day by day. And he said, I am too sick for these people. They're much better than me. And that wasn't the case at all. We sat down. We had a long talk. It turns out it was the Jewish New Year. People were walking around saying Happy New Year. And he didn't think it was Christmas. He didn't remember Christmas. He said for him to forget Christmas. And now it's New Year's. He, he had to stay home. So different trigger. And we never would have imagined this. So he understood the explanation and he happily came back. Can you tell us about the poetry project and how it became the basis for Silent Tears? How did you start working with them with their creative process? If you're just joining us now, you're listening to Healing Wisdom on WOMR. I'm Pandora Peoples, and we are speaking with Dr. Paula David, a geriatric and group therapist who specializes in working with patients who have experienced extreme trauma. Dr. David is an educator, lecturer, and her collective poetry project with Holocaust survivors became the inspiration for Silent Tears, the last Yiddish tango, a collection of poems turned songs. I have a town crier note. There is an opening Wednesday, March 29th from 4 to 6 at Edgewood Farm at 3 Edgewood Way in Truro. Castle Hill presents an opening of Myra Coy's Radiant Light Sanctuary Installation and In the Light of Love painting series. Myra has been an artist-in-residence at Edgewood Farm's new print shop and painting studio building for the past month and has built on the Radiant Light prototype she created there last fall. She will be joined by jazz musicians Nadia Washington and Ken Fields and poet Kate Wallace Rogers who will be responding live to this inspirational work. Back to my conversation with Dr. Paula David. Did you ever work with them with visual art? Our first big group project actually was not the poems, but we made a quilt and it ended up being about 14 feet wide. And it was always going to be a hanging quilt and about 10 feet tall. And I think we had 14 women and the plan was every woman would have one square, the same size, 
and they would have full say of what went into their square. It produced a lot of good conversation. How do you want to be remembered? I always said in 30, 40 years from now, knowing that none of us would be around that long, but, and we don't want to traumatize people. We don't want people to look at this quilt and run away. So what would you like to say about your life and your world that you would feel proud to show? Now, I failed sewing classes and everything else right throughout school. So fortunately, we had a quilter's guild in the city and they volunteered to do the sewing part of it. So we spent in our group lots of weeks and time about what would go on each person's square. And they were all totally uniquely different. And then, of course, nobody had any photos. And this was some time ago, so photo transfer was uncommon. Those that did have photos wouldn't let them out of their sight. So what we would do is have a volunteer in the meeting, take the photos, run to the local mall, do a transfer, and run right back. So they hadn't left the room while we had the photos. Where they didn't have photos, it was it got to be quite fun and creative. One woman had said her mother looked just like Golda Meir. So we got a picture of Golda Meir and there were no photos of anything. And her father, there were no photos, no relatives, no nothing in their history. Somebody, she went to Israel after the war on her way to Canada. She saw a book, a tourist book of her town. And in the town were various soccer teams, one of which her father was in. And that was the first time she'd ever seen a photo post-war of her father. And she had it, and that was her greatest treasure. We scanned it. We scanned his teeny-weeny little face out of this group photo in a small book, blew it up, and we had on her quilt a picture of her mother and father. But what they chose was one woman chose her great-grandson's wedding invitation because he, she had a great-grandson, and there was going to be a wedding. So a whole variety of that and the quilt was sewn together and then it hung in the halls of the apartment complex. And then the next one, where do we go from that? That was, but mostly that was a vehicle to get people comfortable talking and sharing. And they were so proud of it at the end. And their names were embroidered beautifully, again, by volunteers. How did the poetry project come about? That evolved as well. It was never planned to be what it was. It was my need initially for trying to absorb what I was hearing and understand it and keep having those discussions. And I also knew I was hearing something unique and special, and I wasn't sure what to do with it. So with permission, I started taping the sessions. Then I would go home at night, and rather than toss and turn and not be able to sleep, I started pulling out on different themes, hunger, violence, children, and with the different women had spoken of and put it together and called it a poem, but definitely verbatim their words, including when it was not exactly correct grammar or different English syntax, because that really was how everyone spoke. And... Um, so there would be a poem on hunger. There would be a poem on pain. And what is that? Um, and then I, so the first time I did it, I took it back. I said, I have this poem. I'd like to read it to you. And there's like, that's amazing. That's just how I feel. I understand. Who, where did you get that? So I said, no. And they didn't believe me. Ultimately, they heard their own 
words, like not everybody had four children who were killed that way. That's me. That's my family. And so we proceeded. We started taping every group. At the end of the group, I would say, okay, we've talked about five different areas. Which one should we have a poem on next week? I would go home and it put a structure to a group that hadn't had that much structure, but after a couple of years needed it. So I would come back and I would read the poem. They had everyone had 100% right to change their own words, but nobody else's. And we would talk about which ones should come first, how it should be laid out, and then um, what we would want for the next week. And that generated new stories, new conversations, and kept us all going. And then I realized this is something magic that has happened. We need a book. And I couldn't convince anybody else, but the print shop at the hospital printed it up. Um, my son, this was early, early computer days, helped me and my high school son helped me with word processing. The man in the print shop did a lot of work and we sent it to the, we're affiliated with the university, to the university bookbinding company where they do journals and magazines. So, and they went all out when they saw what that was. And we got this, they only bind in so many colors. So I chose white and someone designed the logo for it. And it came back and he we chose gold embossed printing because we had three options. But inside was a list of everybody's name. And he saw, they read it. They were so moved in the print shop that they made for each of the survivors in the group their own personalized copy with their name on the cover embossed in gold. And that's sort of how this little book worked. Anyone that saw it um, made sure it got into various libraries and went around and wanted a copy. Um, and it kept us going. We had a book launch. They were so excited for the literally for the rest of their lives. And then I eventually left Baycrest years later. Flash forward, I met Dan Rosenberg, who is this maestro of producing um, international music. He he saw them, and it was his idea to put it to music in a CD, and it has a life of its own since then. And what's so beautiful, it's a posthumous life in, in terms of the people who sat down in the first place. Molly Applebaum, who was a survivor that was not part of my group, is some of the songs are based on her memoirs as well, but her words, and she is still with us. So that's kind of a wonderful thing too, because Molly is, um, I think she's 92 now. So she knows that this has happened and heard the music, but it's a new life. It's a new generation listening, and it's not wrapped up in trauma, which is um, a healing factor, I think. And it just shows how alternate routes of dealing with trauma are exactly what we need. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about art and and why it works and why it supports the healing, healing from trauma? Because for some totally horrific, gross, inconceivable things that happen, I we don't really have words. Um, I don't. <laughs> and that's why I think poetry, music, visual arts, sculpture, it's another way of 
expressing emotion. And I actually don't think any one medium, including words, could tackle all of it. So a multimedia approach, as well as it seems that trauma is a random event of who it's going to hit. So whatever is happening in Ukraine today, we have older adults, we have kids, we have soldiers, we have just men that stayed behind and never fought in their lives or fighting for their lives. Um, so you can't sort of go in with one approach to supporting people and helping them through it. So that's one reason. The other reason is for the rest of us who need to understand what's going on and need to know who these people are and what they've seen, we can't process it with just words. It's too much to process. So that's the main reason. And then moving forward, and I see this happening with Silent Tears, this CD, there's a whole generation that isn't going to be personally touched by the Holocaust. They're pretty much here now. There will be generations that won't be touched by what's happening today. And so postmodern communication, some way of trying to teach the lessons and learn from this, I think it's a no-brainer that it has to be a multifaceted mixed-media approach. I've been speaking with Dr. Paula David. For the first and third part of this interview with Dr. Paula David, you can go to HealingWisdomRadioShow.com. You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcasts at WOMR.org. Also check out HealingWisdomRadioShow.com. And contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org. Our theme music is provided by Mazin. You can find her website at MazinMusic.com. That's M-A-E-S-Y-N. 